on to Christmas stuff. It is the season, or tis the season, as we like to say. And if you're asking yourself, like, tis the season for what exactly, uh, I'd be surprised because I think we all understand what this season represents because polls would indicate that this is your favorite time of the year. That's what the research says. When asked what their favorite holiday to celebrate was, 46% of Americans said it was this time of year. It was Christmas time. Uh, followed by a distant second of the, the holiday we just celebrated, Thanksgiving at 19%. So, I mean, this is far and away most everyone's favorite holiday. Uh, raise your hand if Christmas is your favorite. Oh, yeah. Raise your hand if you have a, a different favorite. Wow. Wow. Thanksgiving. Okay. <laughs> we like to eat. It's cool. Um, yeah. You know, I, I'm cliche, maybe. I'm, I'm basic. I, I love Christmas time just like half of you do. Um, the other half, I guess we can argue later, but the, the, the chances are likely that, that all of us love Christmas time, even if it's not your favorite. And so now that Thanksgiving has passed and Black Friday has arrived and gone, although it doesn't seem to be as, as big a deal as it was a few years ago, like it is, we are officially in Christmas time. We are in the midst of Christmas time. And it is that time of year when we get to enjoy all of our favorite customs, all of our favorite traditions, all of our favorite Christmas songs, and when I think about Christmas songs and I think about our culture and like all the things that we value and think about this time of year, I think no song probably brings it all together quite like that Andy Williams classic. Like it's the most wonderful time of the year. It's a song we've probably heard a trillion times in our lifetime. But it goes something like this. You know, it's the most wonderful time of the year with kids jingle belling and everyone telling you be of good cheer. Help me out, church. It's the most Wonderful time of the year, right? It's the hap happiest season of all with those holiday greetings and gay happy meetings when friends come to call. It's the hap happiest season of all. That there'll be parties for hosting, marshmallows for toasting, and caroling out in the snow. Not here, right? <clears throat> there'll be scary ghost stories. I'm not sure what that's all about. And tales of the glories of Christmases long, long ago. It's the most wonderful time of the year. There'll be much mistletoeing, and hearts will be glowing when loved ones are near. It is the most wonderful time of the year. And, and I, I guess aside from the scary ghost stories, which, I, I, again, I don't understand. Is, is there... Scrooge? Okay, I was just saying, there's, there's a line here that is going way over my head. Maybe you guys did Christmas different back in the day than we do now. But yeah... It, it, that's Christmas for a lot of us. It's a, it's a time for, for family. It's a time for parties. It's a time for happiness and for cheer and joy and all of that stuff. Like Christmas will put a smile on your face and we love Christmas for that. But have you ever stopped to consider why? Have you ever stopped to consider why? How we got here? Like why is this the most wonderful time of the year. And so as we ask that question, we're going to go to God and open with a word of prayer. So I invite you to stand where you are. Let's just talk to God. Let's give him all, all glory, praise, and honor this morning. <clears throat> Father, we, we are excited uh, to get into the holiday season. We're excited to get into Christmas and to think about Jesus and to think about what you did for us You know, 2,000 years ago, Lord. You, you changed the, the course of human history. You changed the world and you began to bring life to dead people, Father. And we just want to praise you for that. 
Lord, I pray that, that as we, we come together and we think about Christmas stuff, Lord, it's not about Christmas trees and it's not about gifts and it's not about all the things that we make it about, Lord, that for this time, we're going to think about your son. We're going to think about what you were doing before the beginning of time to begin to plan to save us, Father. And, and what a blessing it is that you are a God who is merciful and loving and, and you, you, you just give your mercies to us freely, Father. You pour them out on us, Lord, and we, we live because of you. We only live because of you, Father. And so I pray, Lord, that as we, we spend a few minutes in your word, and we think about what is happening this time of year, Lord, I pray that you would focus our minds. I pray that you would open our ears. I pray that you would open our hearts. If there's any hardness, Father, soften it so that we can hear a message of hope. We can hear the message of cheer that, that comes through your word and, and was planned before it ever happened, Lord. It wasn't just accidental. It didn't just happen. It wasn't something you did on a whim. Lord, it was something that you were planning for a very long time because you loved us so much. You loved us so much. And I pray that we never lose sight of that. I pray that you would, you would send your Holy Spirit into this place this morning to help us grow and to help us understand just how special this time really is. Father, speak through me. I don't want any word of mine said to be my words, Lord. I pray that they're your words. Give us ears to hear. Give us a heart of joy. We pray all this in Jesus' holy name. Amen. Amen. All right, you can be seated. Uh, as we get started this morning, I want to share something with you that we're doing that I, I hope will be you know, kind of fun or cool for all of you. But as we prepare for this, this Christmas season or this season of Advent, this time where we, we celebrate and remember the coming of Christ, uh, I wanted you to have a, a more full and more well-rounded opportunity to enjoy this season maybe from multiple perspectives. And so we're going to do something kind of fun here. For this Advent series... Lake Merced has teamed up with the Tri-Valley Church of Christ and my buddy Jacob Parnell in Livermore. So that for this week and for the next three weeks, Jacob and I are going to be preaching the exact same text. We're going to be preaching the exact same text. We'll have spent some time on the phone, kind of collaborating, thinking through, and just praying through this together. And just think about the, the birth of Jesus. And so the advantage to you is that you get to sit here and listen to the message here, and then we'll link his sermon later this week or send an email or something so that you can go on and listen to his perspective and what God was doing in his heart this week. And so if you walk away from this message today or next week or the week after that and think, man, like Josh totally whiffed on that sermon, like have no fear. There, there, I have good faith that you can log on, you can hear Jacob's message and he will have nailed it and you still get to walk away encouraged. And that's what this series is all about is we want to walk away encouraged and we want to celebrate Jesus. Don't we church? Amen. Amen. Can I get an amen for that? Let's celebrate amen. Jesus. Yeah. So we'll be, we'll be sure to link Jacob's messages to you so you can listen to those throughout the coming weeks. So keep your eyes open for that. But before we, uh, we left off for prayer, I asked you a question. And the question was this. Why is this the most wonderful time of the year? Why? And I fully recognize that for some of us, maybe some of us in this room, like this, this really isn't. It doesn't feel like the most wonderful time of the year because... There are, there are lots of different reasons that people go through pain this time of year. There are lots of, of, of people who deal with loneliness and suffering and all kinds of stuff, loved ones that they missed. And so this isn't always the most wonderful time of the year for everyone. And yet for a lot of us, 
It is. It's, it's a wonderful time of year. It's a time of year that we celebrate and we enjoy. And so as you think about all the songs that you're going to be hearing on the radio as you walk through the store or drive in the car or whatever it might be, sing along the way, uh, you're going to hear a recurring theme. Some of our, our favorite Christmas songs reveal all sorts of words and themes, but there are four that kind of stood out to me this week as I thought about it. Number one is joy. Like we sing about joy to the world, right? Joy to the world. Joy. Peace on earth. Peace on earth. Mercy mild. The thrill of hope. A weary world rejoices. Like these are all lines that are sort of like ingrained in us. And so we think about Christmas. These are the four words that we think of. We think of joy and peace and mercy and hope. Say those with me, church. Joy, peace, mercy, hope. Like that is Christmas. When we think of Christmas, these are the words that come to mind. And yet I ask you again, why? Why? Why these words? Because there's, there's something interesting about these particular words that we have to understand before we can ever appreciate why we use them. And I want to try to illustrate what I mean. Maybe I've used this illustration before. Maybe I haven't. Raise your hand if you know what hot is. Raise your hand if you know what hot is. You ever felt hot? There's a lot of you who've never felt hot. Yeah. How do you know what hot is? Have you ever thought about that? How do you know what hot means for something to be hot? Now, we only know what hot is in the context of what? Cold. Cold showed you what hot is. Hot showed you what cold is. You kind of need both of those things. What makes something good? Well, we only understand what is good when we also experience what is bad, bad right? How about delicious? What makes something delicious? Well, ask yourself what the opposite of delicious is. Onions. Onions are the opposite of delicious. Raw onions. If you have ever eaten a raw onion, you know what delicious is. It is whatever a raw onion is not. Yes. So you don't have to take my word for it. This is objectively true information. Onions are the opposite of delicious. So when we talk or we sing or we think about joy or peace or mercy or hope, we have to understand why those words are significant. And they're so significant because joy is only joy in the midst of despair. And peace is only peace in the midst of turmoil. And mercy is only mercy in the midst of ruthlessness. And, and hope is only hope when everything seems lost. When everything seems lost. And so as we look to the biblical account in those centuries before Christ ever walked on this earth, we have to recognize that joy and peace and mercy and hope were absent in the land. They were utterly absent for those people. And so open your Bibles, if you would, to Jeremiah chapter 33. That's where we're going to be spending most of our time this morning. And it's going to be a few minutes before we get there, so feel free to mark it or leave your finger there in that page. But Jeremiah 33 is a message of hope. It's a message of hope when all hope seems lost. And so before you can appreciate everything that's happening in Jeremiah 33, you sort of need a crash course on everything that's happened throughout Israel's history leading up to that point. Now, a lot of us remember the story of Moses and, and the book of Exodus. And if you haven't read it, maybe you've seen the, the movie The Prince of Egypt. It covers all this, right? 
But it's a story where God's people, the Israelites, are in Egyptian captivity. They've been there for 400 years, and God raises up Moses, who comes in and yells, let my people go, and Pharaoh lets him go. And they, they, they split the Red Sea, they walk through dry land, and they spend 40 years wandering through the wilderness before God brings them to a land that he's prepared for them. When we call that land the promised land, or we call it sometimes Canaan, but it was a land that was flowing with milk and honey. Like this wasn't just any land, church. This was the very best land that there was. And God gave that land to his people. It was Amen. theirs. And so the Israelites lived there. They enjoyed the fruits of that land for a short period of time. But they began to get restless. And so what they began to do was they started to look around. And they started to see all these other nations. And when they looked at all these other nations, they saw a common trend. They said, oh, all these nations, they have kings. Well, we want a king. We want a king just like them, a king that will lead us out into, the, into battle, a king that will lead us, a king that will rule over us. We want a king too. And the Bible tells us they didn't realize they already had a king, right? They had a king in God already. They had something that all the other nations didn't have. They had God as their king, but they had forgotten how God had delivered them. They had forgotten how God would rain down food from heaven, literally manna from heaven, and it would gather on the ground and they would eat that. They'd forgotten how good God was, how he had kept them safe. And so they looked on the other side and they did what a lot of us do when we look around at other people's circumstances. They saw greener grass. Raise your hand if you've ever looked at someone else and thought, man, what they have looks better than what I have. Raise your hand if you've ever saw greener grass on the other side. That's exactly what the Israelites do. And so they ask for a king and God goes, all right, and he relents reluctantly, but he tells them that a king is not going to be the answer to their greatest desires. Instead, through the prophet Samuel, God tells the people this. And this is uh, from the, the book of 1 Samuel chapter 8, if you want to follow along. But it says, this is what the king who will reign over you will claim as his rights. He will take your sons and make them serve with his chariots and horses, and they will run in front of his chariots. Some he will assign to be commanders of thousands and commanders of fifties and others to plow his ground and reap his harvest and still others to make weapons of war and equipment for his chariots. He will take your daughters to be perfumers and cooks and bakers. He will take the best of your fields and vineyards and olive groves and give them to his attendants. He will take a tenth of your grain and of your vintage and give it to his officials and attendants your male and female servants and the best of your cattle and donkeys he will take for his own use. He will take a tenth of your flocks and you yourselves will become his slaves. And when that day comes, you will cry out for relief from the king you have chosen, but the Lord will not answer you in that day. And so in essence, God says, all right, Israel, you want a king? Here's a king. But that king is not going to give you anything. Instead, that king is going to take and take and take and take and take and take and take some more until you have nothing left. And the people listened to what God said and they responded with this. This is verbatim. No, we want a king over us then we will be like all the other nations. We don't want to be us. We want to be them. And so God gave them what they asked for, and he raised up 
a good king named Saul, but power corrupted Saul. And God removed his blessing from Saul, who eventually took his own life. So God raised up a second king, King David. King David was a good king, and he was a king who gave us most of our psalms. John referenced those today in his communion talk. He he gave us most of these psalms that we've been reading, and yet as you read his psalms, you read sometimes his cries for mercy, like in Psalm 51, which you're going to be reading a week from today, and you realize that the pain and the suffering that David encountered in his life Uh, from sin and corruption was palpable. You could feel it. You could touch it. King David was the best of kings, and yet even he suffered through deep corruption of his own heart. And so God raised up a third king, his son, King Solomon, who was also supposed to be a good king. And Solomon uh, supposedly gave us a song of Solomon, and he gave us Ecclesiastes, and he gave us Proverbs, and he was renowned for all his wealth. He was renowned, world-renowned, for all his wisdom. And yet Solomon, in all of that wisdom, was a man who had 700 wives. He was a man who had 300 concubines, and he himself admitted to pursuing all the pleasures that the earth could provide. And as Ecclesiastes sheds light on, he looks back at it all and he sums it all up with one word. What word was that, church? Meaningless. Meaningless, meaningless, meaningless. He says, all of that, all the pleasure I enjoyed, I had power, I had women, I had money, I had it all. And all of it was utterly meaningless. And then that was it. Solomon was the last king to reign under a united Israel for his entire life. Because as he died, and he passed the kingdom on to his son Rehoboam, within a few short years, Israel would be ripped into two. A man named Jeroboam would rise up and would claim the throne of the northern territory known as Israel. And Rehoboam would continue as king of the southern territory, which would become known as Judah. So Israel and Judah. And so Jeroboam, here in the north, would be the first of 19 kings over the northern kingdom of Israel. And none of them, none of them, we're told, were good kings. They would all eventually be conquered by the Assyrians and taken out of the land and into captivity. Meanwhile, Rehoboam would reign over Judah in the south as the first of 20 kings. And most of those 20 kings were also evil kings. In fact, the text tells us of only six kings that were good kings. Six kings who did right in God's eyes. They were King Asa, Jehoshaphat, Uzziah, Jotham, Hezekiah, and Josiah. And so as we read from Jeremiah the prophet this morning, we are reading the words of the prophet of God who is being held captive in a courtyard by the last of Judah's kings. He's a man by the name of Zedekiah. Say Zedekiah, church. That's going to become really, really important throughout this series. His name was changed to Zedekiah from Madaniah, and his name literally means God is righteous or God is just. And that name, like I said, is going to become important. So remember that name. But as Jeremiah is here and he's held captive in this courtyard by King Zedekiah, the kingdom of Judah is under siege by the, the Babylonian Empire, King Nebuchadnezzar, they are sieging Judah. And, and Jeremiah looks to Zedekiah and he begins to tell him, he says, Judah is not going to escape 
the Babylonians, Zedekiah. You need to understand that. Babylon is going to conquer you and he's going to carry you off into captivity in exactly the same way that Israel fell to the Assyrians. Like this is going to happen. And so in Jeremiah chapter 32, if you flip back one page from where I had you mark earlier, God speaks. And this is what he says. Uh, He says, the people of Israel and Judah have done nothing but evil in my sight from their youth. Indeed, that the people of Israel have done nothing but arouse my anger with what their hands have made, declares the Lord. From the day it was built until now, this city has so aroused my anger and my wrath that I must remove it from my sight. The people of Israel and Judah have provoked me by all the evil they have done. They, their kings and officials, their priests and prophets, the people of Judah and those living in Jerusalem, they turn their backs to me and not their faces. Though I taught them again and again, they would not listen or respond to discipline. And so in the years to come, Judah is going to go through just that. They're going to be conquered. They're going to be captured. And they're going to be carried off into captivity by Babylon. Like in a sense, everything they had has been lost. They have nothing left of the promise. It would seem that God gave Abraham way back in the day. Hopefully you remember that text where God speaks to Abraham and he says, Abraham, if you can count the stars in the sky, if you can count the the grains of sand on a seashore, that's what your offspring will be like. And you're going to have this land. He said there's this massive promise and yet there's going to be nothing left of it at this point in time by the time Babylon finishes uh, sieging Judah. And so you think about that, like everything they had was about to be lost. Everything they had was about to be lost. And and I want you to imagine for a moment, I want you to imagine a, a story about a man who had absolutely nothing. He was a hopelessly poor man. He was a homeless man. And each night, night after night after night, he cried out to God and he begged And he begged and he begged, God, please just put a roof over my head. Please, Lord, let me be dry. We can appreciate that in this wet weather. Please, Lord, let me be warm. Lord, I don't need to be rich. I don't need to have anything uh, special. I just want to have enough. Lord, just give me enough. And that was his plea, night after night after night. And eventually, imagine this man wins the lottery. And God not only blesses everything he ever asked for, but he makes him the richest man on the face of the earth. Except that in a few short years, imagine that man is so overcome by corruption and greed and crime that his story ends with him here, being hauled off and carried away to prison. Imagine that story. Because we hear stories like that from time to time. We hear stories about people who had nothing and they rise from the ashes and they have something only to lose it all again through foolishness. If you can imagine that story, if you've heard that story before, then you can appreciate what Israel is going through because that is the story of Israel in Jeremiah chapter 33. It's a story about a people who had nothing, gained it all, and lost it all. It's a story about a people on the verge of a life sentence. It's a story of hopelessness, of complete and total hopelessness. Now, I may have told this story before. In fact, I think I may have, but it stands out as as one that's prominent in my mind. Nowhere near as uh, impactful as this. But I remember when I was seven or eight years old, for Christmas, 
I had this one toy that I really, really wanted. It was a remote control truck called the Eliminator. And I wanted the Eliminator so bad, and I begged, and I begged, and I begged to have the Eliminator. It was like the fastest remote control truck out there. It was awesome. And so when Christmas morning came, and I ripped open the packages, guess what I saw? Man, there it was. I finally got that thing that I wanted. I had the Eliminator. And so I took it out that day, and I drove it around Christmas morning, and it was fast. It was as fast as anything I'd ever had in my life. And so I took it out the day after Christmas, and it was still fast. It was still amazing. And I got a bright idea. I looked over on a day not unlike this one, and I saw a puddle. And I thought, how awesome would it be to take my Eliminator through that puddle? And that is the day that I learned that electronics and water do not mix very well. Because this one thing that I wanted so bad, I finally had... And now in a moment, it was shot, it was ruined, and I lost it. I lost it. I had everything in that moment that I wanted as a kid, but in my foolishness, I lost it all. And all I could do was look back with regret. That is Israel. That is Judah in this story. And yet, in the immediate aftermath of the story of desolation, in the immediate aftermath of the story of destruction from the ashes comes a message of Hope Church. Jeremiah says, You are saying about this city, by the sword, famine, and plague, it will be given into the hands of the king of Babylon. But this is what the Lord, the God of Israel, says. I will surely gather them from all the lands where I banished them. In my furious anger and great wrath, I will bring them back to this place. I will bring them back and I will let them live in safety. They will be my people and I will be their God. And he continues, this is Jeremiah 33, verse 11. For I will restore the fortunes of the land as they were before, says the Lord. This is what the Lord Almighty says. In this place, desolate and without people or animals, in all its towns, There will again be pastures for shepherds to rest their flocks. In the towns of the hill country, of the western foothills and and of the Negev, in the territory of Benjamin, in the villages around Jerusalem, and in the towns of Judah, flocks will again pass under the hand of the one who counts them, says the Lord. The days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will fulfill the good promise I made to the people of Israel and Judah. And in those days, and at that time, I will make a righteous branch sprout from King David's line, and he will do what is just and right in the land. In those days, Judah will be saved, and Jerusalem will live in safety. This is the name by which he will be called, the Lord our righteous Savior. Church, this is a story that says in the midst of despair, God's message was hope. Can you say hope, church? There is hope. His message is that there will again be joy, that there will again be peace, that there will again be mercy, and there will again in this land be hope. Church, when you are in despair, when you are suffering, and some of you in this room have gone through moments of despair and suffering, 
Words like joy and peace and mercy and hope are the kinds of words that you hang on. Those are the kinds of words that you cling to with everything you absolutely have. If you have ever been there, what is it that gets you through those dark times? It is the hope and the faith that in the midst of darkness, there is light at the end of the tunnel, that there is an end to this tunnel in sight. That is what keeps the marathoner running despite his agony. That is what keeps the single mom motivated to keep getting up and working those two jobs to provide for her family. That is what keeps the military spouse sane as they watch their husband or wife go away for 12 months at a time while they do everything alone. That there is an end in sight. That there is hope for a future. But there's a twist to this story. There's a twist to this story, church. Because as Jeremiah shared those words with the people of Judah, it would almost sound, almost sound like God would rescue his people from the Babylonians rather quickly, doesn't it? And yet, if you know the story, is that what happens? Go like this. Not at all. In fact, God's people are going to live under Babylonian rule for 70 years. For 70 years. And that's only going to let up when the Babylonians are conquered in battle by the Persians and the Medes. And so they're going to live under the control of the Persians and the Medes. And yeah, the Persians and the Medes are, deal rather kindly with the, the Jews and the Israelites. But make no mistake, Canaan was not their land. Canaan was not their land. And so some 200 years later, the Persians and the Medes would fall to Alexander the Great and Greece. And Canaan was not their land. There'd be a brief period called the Hasmonean dynasty, which would last 60 or 80 years that they would live under. And then finally, Rome. In the year 65 or 63 BCE, Rome would come in and they would establish this territory, this promised land, as nothing more than a client state of theirs. And once again, Canaan was not their land. And so the promises of Jeremiah 33 and the promises of many other prophets, they just sort of linger there. They linger as these messages of hope. But now it's been 500 plus years since those messages came down and they begin to feel like distant memories. If you'd waited 500 years for a promise to be fulfilled, you might be a little cynical that a promise was ever going to be fulfilled. This begins to feel like an unfulfilled promise that maybe joy and maybe peace and maybe burnt mercy and maybe hope were not promised realities at all. Maybe these are just pipe dreams. Maybe, maybe these were empty words. You couldn't fault them for being discouraged. You couldn't. And yet there's something important about God that I hope you walk away from this and you never forget, or at least I hope you know. And a lot of you know this already, but I want to remind you, God does not break his promises. Can you say that with me, church? God does not break his promises. Guys, when you go back and you look at the story of King David, we've talked about a little bit this morning, what do you see? You see a promise. That's what you see in David's life. 2 Samuel chapter 7, God says, David, when your days are over and you rest with your ancestors, I will raise up your offspring to succeed you. I will raise up your own flesh and blood and I will establish his kingdom. He is the one who will build a house for my name 
and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. Forever. Is he talking only about King Solomon there, church? No, a little bit of King Solomon, but that forever component changes things. And so when you read Isaiah and you read Jeremiah and you read these other prophets, what do you see? You see promises, promise after promise after promise after promise. In fact, when you read Jeremiah 33, just that one chapter alone from beginning to end, maybe you've already skimmed it, I don't know, but there's a recurring theme there that I'm curious if you saw. Did you see what happens in Jeremiah 33 over and over and over again? I will, I will, I will, I will, I will, I will. Over and over and over again, God speaks throughout Jeremiah 13 times in that chapter. God says, I will. And this isn't the conditional like I will if. No, this is a unilateral, unconditional covenant that God is making. I will. It's a matter of fact. And so when you look at Jeremiah 33, beginning in verse 20, God says, if you can break my covenant with the day and my covenant with the night so that day and night no longer come at their appointed time, then my covenant with with my servant David can be broken and David will no longer have a descendant to reign on his throne. I will make the descendants of David my servant and the Levites who minister before me as countless as the stars in the sky and as measureless as the sand on the seashore. That language should be awfully familiar to us, church. That is Abraham language. If I asked you to bet me something, if I asked each of you, bet me $1 million, and I said to you, I bet evening will not come tonight and and the sun will not rise tomorrow morning, how many of you would take that bet? If gambling was okay, I understand. Like, yeah, come on. How many of you would take that bet? We'll call it an investment. How about that? Okay? Then we'll feel more comfortable with it. How many of you are confident that the sun will set tonight and the sun will rise tomorrow morning? 100% of us, right? Absolutely. Like it's a certainty in our minds because we've seen that happen again and again and again, day after day, without fail. Guys, that's the kind of certainty with which God speaks about the future that is to come to his people. That even when it doesn't feel like it, and even when you can't see it or understand it, God will do this. He will do this, that there is hope, and there will one day, in the midst of pain, be joy and mercy and peace. And it will come as a branch from King David, and he will be called the Lord, our righteous Savior. And church, I want you to see something. I want you to see something. When Jeremiah says that there will be a righteous savior, that word righteous in the Hebrew is the word sedek. Can you say sedek? It's the word sedek, which is the root word in, in Zedekiah's name. It's a play on words. So I, I want you to see this. More than the word meaning righteous here. Lord, our righteous Savior. One commentator suggests that a better understanding of this phrase is rightful. Rightful or lawful. In other words, what is Jeremiah prophesying? He's prophesying this. He's saying that in the place of Zedekiah, this last and evil king of Judah, God will raise up a true and rightful Zedekiah. Sedek plus Yah 
God our righteousness, or God is righteous. He's going to raise up a true and rightful Zedekiah. And that true and rightful Zedekiah is the same as the true and rightful king of Judah. Guys, who's he talking about? Who is the true and rightful Zedekiah? Who is the true and rightful king of Judah? Say his name like you love him. Absolutely. Like you love him? Let's try that again. His name is what, church? Thank you. Yes. And so I want to invite you to turn your Bibles over to Luke chapter 1. Luke chapter 1. The angel Gabriel appears to a young woman. She's a teenager. She's a virgin. Her name is Mary. You've probably heard of her from once or twice before. And I want you to see the significance of what Gabriel is about to say. He says, Mary, do not be afraid because you have found favor with God. You will conceive and you will give birth to a son and you are to call him Jesus. He will be great and he will be called the son of the most high. The Lord God will give him the throne of his father, David, and he will reign over Jacob's descendants, over Israel's descendants. You remember Jacob's name gets changed to Israel. He will reign over Israel's descendants forever. His kingdom will never end. Guys, do you understand what Gabriel just said, said to Mary here? Gabriel just told Mary that a king, a righteous king, a branch from David who will reign on his throne forever and ever and ever and whose kingdom will never end is on the way. And Mary, that's your boy. That's your boy. And his name is Jesus. Church, God does not break his promises. He does not break his promises. Amen. When God says, I will, he means it. He absolutely means it. When Gabriel uttered those words to a teenage girl, he uttered the words that would reverse centuries of hardship. He uttered words that represented the end of the tunnel, the end of darkness, the end of, cap of, of captivity, that the end was near and hope was finally being realized. And so church, why do you need to hear this message today? I'm going to tell you why. You need to hear this message today because you have suffered. You need to hear this message today because you have hurt. You need to hear this today because you have experienced pain and you have cried out. Do you want to know how I know? I bet you know how I know. Because we all have. Yeah. We all have felt pain Amen. and suffering and turmoil. It is part of the human sin condition that your life and my life is merely a reflection of those 500 plus years of captivity. Only our captivity was not to the Assyrians. And our captivity was not to the Babylonians. And it wasn't to the Greeks. And it wasn't to the Romans. No, our captivity was to what? Sin. It was to sin. And the Bible says that we are slaves to it. We are hopelessly enslaved to sin. That's right. And so the only way that we could be set free from our captivity was exactly the same way that Judah was going to be set free from theirs. They needed a savior. We needed a savior. Right. We needed a righteous king. We needed someone to come in and love us enough 
to show us mercy. And so guys, there are people in this room and there are people in your life right now who are hurting. There are people who are hurting. There are people you know who are in the midst of darkness and who are holding on to hope that there is light at the end of this tunnel of life. That is what keeps them going. It's the hope of light. And so the story of Jesus' birth isn't just a story for the, for the captive Israelites and the captive Jews. The story of Jesus' birth is a story for you. The story of Jesus' birth is a story for me. That, and, and, and it's a story for everyone who's outside our walls this morning, not sitting in this room with us. It's a story for all of us. That in the midst of darkness, Matthew 4.16 quotes the prophet Isaiah. And it says, the people living in darkness have seen a great what? A great light. On those living in the land of the shadow of death, a light has dawned. There is light at the end of this tunnel. Church, Jesus is our light. He is our hope. He is our joy. He is our mercy. He is our peace. And without this moment, we have none of that. We have none of that. Without this moment, we are dead to our sin. But with Jesus, we have life because he is the real and the true Zedekiah. He is the real and true God of righteousness. Friends, I don't know what all of you have gone through. And I don't really need to. I don't know what you're in the midst of right now. But if there's one thing that I want you to glean from this message this morning, it's this, and I hope you never forget it. In the fullness of time, God will. Amen. In the fullness of time, God will. What do I mean? Galatians 4 says, In the fullness of time, God sent his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those under the law, that we might receive adoption to sonship. Church, for 400 years, the Israelites lived in slavery in Egypt with a promise looming for a better future. For 500 years plus, Judah lived in captivity under a series of nations and kings and rulers with a promise looming for a better future. Did God fail to act? No. God acts in his time. God acts in the fullness of, of time. And when God says, I will, church, he means it. He means it. He never breaks his promises. In the fullness of time, God will. So whatever you're dealing with in the season, read this with me. In the fullness of time, God will. Are you suffering? Help me out. In the fullness of time, God will. Are you lonely? In the fullness of time, God will. Are you hurting? In the fullness of time, God will. Are you stuck in sin? Church, in the fullness of time, God will. What will God do? He will be light in your darkness. He will carry your burdens. He will calm your fears. And he will save you from it all. Not part of it, not some of it. He will save you from it all. Say all, church. In the fullness of time, God will. God will. Friends, it's the most wonderful time of the year. It is, but it has nothing to do with jingle belling, with holiday greetings, or with gay happy meetings, or any of that stuff. It's the most wonderful time of the year because in the midst of pain or suffering, when all hope seems lost, a new light has dawned. Amen. Where there once was despair, 
there is joy. Where there once was turmoil, there is peace. Where there once was ruthlessness, there is mercy. And when all seemed lost, there is hope. There is hope. Friends, if you need hope this morning, hope is there for the taking. Hope was given to us 2,000 years ago in Bethlehem. And it's never been taken from us and it never, ever will. Hope is there for the taking. If you have not received Jesus in your life, I want to invite you to do that this morning. You can do that in baptism by, by being buried and, and rising again in the water and receiving his gift of grace. Sin is no more. We, we have been brought from death to life through the, the body and blood of Jesus Christ. And man, we have hope. We have hope. Before that, we had none, church. But now we have hope. In the fullness of time, help me out. God will. Let's stand and sing.